Thank you, Ted. Good morning, everyone. We are uh, going to open to Ephesians 1 today as we open the scriptures to learn. So if you'd turn with me there, please, that would be great. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair near you. And this is on page 674 in the chair Bibles. 674 is Ephesians chapter 1. I don't remember who was using this stand, but there are four writing utensils. Is this one for each song? Kendra, where are you? Where'd she go? She ran. One for each song? There were two on mine and two on Amber's when we moved it. All right. Anybody would like a pen? The scriptures uh, teach that There is one who is ever-present, all-powerful, supremely wise, namely God. The Bible says that he's holy, that he's just, and that he's good. It says that unlimited grace and power, beauty, truth, love, all flow from him. Scriptures say that God created everything and he sustains it, that he is intrinsically benevolent and kind. No one can stay his hand. He's always been and always will be. He's somehow above time and yet active in it. He's even here right now. And that billions of years ago, he was faithful and unchanging. From beginning to end, this is the unified biblical witness to the character of God. I wonder as you hear that, if you think, but you don't know what kind of week I had. Have you looked around? Really? There's a God like that? God, if you are who the Bible says you are, then there's a major disconnect because the world we live in is not marked mainly by grace and beauty and love, is it? The world we live in, and indeed our very bodies, are consumed with decay and self-centeredness, with darkness and with self-interest. Maybe the Bible got it wrong. Or maybe God does exist, but he's holding all the good cards close at hand, and he's just tossing down to humanity the worthless leftovers, like dogs scrapping under the table for a little morsel of food. God, what are you doing? Well, these feelings, of course, are... uh, The loudest, they shout to us when crisis and tragedy come. God, my son has fallen prey to drugs and alcohol again. God, what are you doing? 
God, my mom, this gentle, loving woman, has fourth stage breast cancer. God, what are you doing? God, after all these years and all these prayers, I'm still alone. No one has put a ring on it. God, what are you doing? God, we're out of money. Again, I'm working hard, but the bills are bigger and bigger and bigger. God, what are you doing? God, I've begged for your help, but my classmates continue to pick on me. I have literally no friends, not a single one. God, what are you doing? Any given day, it's tempting to look around and be incredibly perplexed. Because on the one hand, there's this testimony in the Bible that there is a tremendous God. But on the other hand, there's our experiences that so often would want us to believe He doesn't exist. And if He does, then He's just punishing us. Those two ideas can seem completely incongruent. So I would say, as one of your pastors, that if this conjures up doubt and struggle, that I, at least one more person in the room, understands. The world is a hard place. But make no mistake, God is ever at work. And God is who the Bible says He is. The issue is that our eyes must be adjusted and our ears tuned correctly for us to see and hear what God is doing. And today, in the next 35 minutes, we'll see if we can tackle that together. We're in a series that we're just calling Basics, which is the equivalent of spring training for the church. And we've said so far that God has a message, and that message is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We sung about it today. And last week, we said that God has a people, that God rescues sinners, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ then creates a new humanity. And today, we want to ask, what is God's intent? What, what is God up to in the world? When it looks so much like he may not be doing much at all, what is it that he's doing? What is God up to? And in particular, what is he up to in the church, in the, the gatherings all around the world of people rescued by Christ? What is God doing? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10 tells us. Let's read together. It says, In Him, this is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven 
and things on earth. Friends, God's schedule is full, uniting all things in Christ. God's grand objective, his ambition, the end to which everything is working, is to unite everything in him. Well, that clears it all up, right? Not really. Look at verse 9. Paul calls that a mystery. This truth that God somehow is bringing everything under Christ in heaven and on earth is a mystery. But notice that he says it's a mystery that's been revealed. That, that God's intent, God's purpose, God's mission, if you will, has been disclosed. That his character and his plan are not hidden. That God is uniting everything in heaven and on earth in Christ. That God's bringing all fragmentation, all brokenness, all alienation, all hostility, and he's fixing it. And he's bringing it back together, united under Christ. That's what God's doing. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Pam thinks that sounds great. That sounds great. All around us, what we see is a fracturing of peace, of the way things are supposed to be. But God, God is restoring harmony in Christ. But why, or perhaps more accurately, what is this mystery? What exactly is this mystery? And why is God uniting everything under heaven and earth? I'm sure you woke up this morning thinking about that. What is the mystery and why is God uniting everything back under Christ? Those might not be questions we ask often. But if we know the answer, then we'll be able to see what God's doing. Because that's what God's doing. So turn to Ephesians 3, and that's where we find the answer. In Ephesians 3, the author, the human author under the Holy Spirit's leadership, the Apostle Paul, is articulating what God did to lead him to be a loving spiritual leader towards people that he hated, the Gentiles. And in the middle of explaining his story, he goes in and explains in a little excursus, that here's what the church is for. Here's God's intent among the people of God. And we'll read a big section of it and then make some comments. So I'll start in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, there it is again, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, I'm not too bright, but if the same word keeps coming up again and again and again, it's probably important. Are you with me? All right, mystery, 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 mystery. 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Friends, I think this is one of the most beautiful, amazing pictures in the entire Bible. But its implications are rather bold and confrontational. Verse 10 tells us that God's plan for your life And God's plan for our shared life together is that he would put his wisdom on display. That God is uniting people to himself and then to each other under Christ Jesus. Quite simply, God's intent is to exhibit his glory through his people. God's intent is to exhibit his glory through his people. You see, the message of the gospel that Jesus saves, saves all who respond. And then those people are gathered together and they make up churches. And God's intent is to use his people to display his glory. That may not sound like it, but that's really good news. You see, your life is not about you. You are not the star of your own show. You are not the champion of your own destiny. You are not the point. God is. The worship and recognition and praise of God is the point. That is why you draw another breath. That is why we gather again to sing and pray and open the scriptures. Church on Mill is not ultimately about us. We are quite simply a trophy case displaying the wisdom and glory of God. So that as people gather and look in, they don't see what great people we are, but they see what a great God that we serve. That's what verse 10 tells us. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is what God's up to. This is what God's filling his time with. When we can't see what God's doing, when he's not answering the prayers that we're praying in the way that we think he ought, when we open the Bible and read and it feels like nothing's happening, when we fall and stumble and struggle into sin again, this is what God's doing. God is displaying his glory through his church as he unites people to himself and to each other. 
you grasp how big that is? I told you this was going to be heavy. Just sit back for a moment and take what Paul is saying to heart. He's saying that the church has a spiritual audience, that angels and demons are watching, and that through what God's doing among us, the character and reputation of God are displayed. That the stage of the heavenlies is the church on earth. And that Satan and demons are mocking and enjoying all the factions and brokenness of the world. They scoff as people selfishly reject God and live for themselves. But through the church, through the gospel, their plans are being shattered. Through the church, the character of God is displayed as people are rescued out of darkness and then learn to live in light together. That angels are looking in on the church, marveling at the gospel, at the unfolding, manifold wisdom of God as a people who would have no reason to be for each other, learn to live life not for themselves, but for God. You see, the the supreme issue at Church on Mill is not that we get what we want, that our desires are met. The supreme issue is that all of us come to see God as supreme. And that that puts God on display. See, the very credibility of God among cosmic powers and grocery sackers at Fry's, the reputation of God among mighty angels in the heavens and six-year-old little boys, God's reputation among demons and stay-at-home moms is all bound up in what God's doing in the church in his people. I don't pretend to fully grasp that, but that's what this says. One author put it this way, the church is to be the appearance of the gospel. It's what the gospel looks like when played out in people's lives. Christians, not just individuals, But as God's people bound together in churches are the clearest picture the world sees of who God is and what his will is for them. So that's what, but maybe we should ask how. How is it that God's glory is displayed in the church? Well, that's where that word mystery comes in. That came up in chapter 1 and then over and over and over and over again is revealed here in chapter 3 again. It's put, it's defined, it's explained in verse 6. Let me read that one again. It says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, unless you're really, really churchy, Like you've spent a ton of time in the Bible. That's just whoosh. So let me back up just a moment and see if I can explain. In 
in the ancient world, so in the time of the writing of Ephesians, the great dividing line in humanity was Jew and Gentile. That was the, the big issue. The Jews thought of themselves as the insiders in God's plan. And they thought of the Gentiles, so everybody else who was not of Jewish heritage, were the outsiders. These were the good people. These were the bad people. How that ended up that way is a really long story. We'll go into it some other time. But that's just the basic reality of how things functioned. But God's plan had always been to redeem for himself a people, not just from the Jews, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A people from every people group on the planet. The humanity that we're born into is busted, it's broken, it's full of factions. But the new humanity that God is rescuing for himself are people who believe and trust in Christ. And because of that, they find that the cross is the great equalizer. That, that there is no Jew or Greek before the cross. That there is no Republican or Democrat before the cross. That there is no male or female before the cross. That there is no black or white before the cross. That we're all equal. That in Christ, there's a new humanity. You see, God's new humanity is stunningly inclusive. Stunningly. Because all who trust in Christ are in. Not on the basis of what they've done or who they are or what color their skin is, but simply on the basis of who Christ is and what Christ has done. It's okay to shout in here. That is the most tremendous news there could ever be. What is God doing in the world today? God is uniting all things in Christ. God is reconciling sinners to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God's reconciling people to each other. People who, on their own, are not reconciled and have no business in being reconciled, have no desire to be reconciled. And all of this brings praise and glory and honor to God. Let me make this practical. When in the church, a prominent Christian businessman meets up after work with a blue-collared garbage man every week to open the Bible together and to learn as equals under Christ, angels look and say, wow. The wisdom of God. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying when, when a college student with a very full schedule and hardly any money gives up working on Wednesday nights to serve over in that building with the preschoolers, changing diapers so that parents can go to disciple makers, that angels look in and say, wow, the wisdom of God. And when a single woman doesn't spend her time frequenting the place where she might meet a guy 
But instead, spends her time frequenting the places where there's internationals, with other Christians, so that she can help them learn English and get exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Bible. That angels look in on that sacrifice. They say, wow, the wisdom of God. The character of God is at stake. The display of God's glory is at stake through the church. That that's what God is doing. And when a high schooler who prefers rap and hip-hop stands and in this room enthusiastically sings, How great thou art, or be thou my vision, because he or she loves God and has respect for people in the room much older than he or she. That angels look in on that and say, wow, the wisdom of God. All of these are examples of people dying to themselves because they found new life in Christ and doing so unified together in a way that brings glory and honor to God. See, God's intent is to exhibit his glory through a diverse people of every tribe, tongue, and nation who share not the trappings of life, but new life in Christ, reconciled not just to God, but to each other. That is what God's doing. That is how God works. But why? Why that? Why did God choose to work that way? He could have done it all kinds of ways. Why was that his plan? To take people irreconcilable apart from God, hostile towards God, alienated from each other, and to invite them to Christ and to each other. Why did he choose to do it that way? Why does the resolution of the gospel of all that divides us from each other maximize the glory of God? Why? Well, friends, it's because all of us are born sinful. We're we're born with an inward bent, alienated from God and each other. And our very nature is to live for ourselves, hating God and using people. And so when we gather apart from Christ, how do we gather? We gather with people who are like us, who look like us, think like us, dress like us, have a similar amount of money, similar background, similar desires. We see this everywhere, don't we? People gather into cliques that look like them. Why? Because we're sinful. And so if I'm with people who are like me, then my sin is not exposed very much because no one's pointing it out to me. It's not not on display. I'm not pushed to love somebody who looks different than me, talks different than me, smells different than me, talks different than me, where... Their issues are not rubbing up against my issues. 
because we're the same. And so God's plan is to take people who are not the same, give them the same Savior, and then that Savior is put on display as a diverse people are forced to live not out of their sameness, but out of the glory of Christ in the gospel. You see, the effects of our sin are far greater than we tend to realize. Sin has a way of dehumanizing us. And then we treat each other in a a dehumanizing way. Here's what I mean. In the majority American culture, old people are not treated well. They're not looked up to. They're not admired. They're not respected. They're discarded. They're like used up genes that just get thrown away. It's not that way everywhere in the world, but it is that way in the majority culture in America. But it's not that way in the church. In the church, young people, we understand from the scriptures that gray hair is a sign of wisdom. And so when a young person goes to visit a member who can't even get out of their bed anymore, and they sit and they listen, and they hear the same story six times, the glory of God is put on display. It rehumanizes. In the world, women are gawked at and lusted after. Porn is perhaps the greatest way in which people are dehumanized today, where people are treated like objects to be looked at, stared at, used up selfishly, and then walked away from but not so in the church. In the church, there's a new humanity where where people aren't treated a particular way based on the curves of their body, but on the glory of Christ in them. There's a new humanity. Racism is alive and well where people are treated a particular way based on where they're from, and the pigment of their skin. But not so in the church. Where Asian and Hispanic, African-American, and Caucasian are equals in Christ. You see, sin has a way of dehumanizing us. But the gospel creates a new humanity. That new humanity then puts the glory of God on display. This is what God's doing. Look around you. God is here. God is at work. The Bible tells us the truth. We will be tempted to build every relationship we have, even in the church, 
on homogeneity. Not on the shared experience of God's amazing grace. So in other words, college students, you'll be tempted to hang out with college students. Senior adults, you'll be tempted to hang out with senior adults. Right? But that's not God's intent. The gospel witness of the local church is harnessed. It's increased. It's maximized when we're not all the same. And we go out of our way to love people and serve people and build relationships with people in the body who are not like us. That unity in diversity maximizes the display of God's glory. And so we do some things as leaders that drive some of you absolutely nuts. We start no age group or life segregated classes, ever. Why? Because when an old person and a young person get into a gospel community together, then they've got to work at not living selfishly. Selfishlessly. No? Selflessly. There it is. Thank you. When someone who can't talk very well, and all of you who do, that, that when somebody in the room with a lot of money begins meeting up in a discipling relationship, with somebody who makes minimum wage, that would go out of our way to build a church structure that's simple, where it, it doesn't allow us to gather in sameness, but in the shared experience of Christ saving us. Where connection classes are, are not life groups where you gather with the same people that you've known for the last 25 years. But every six weeks, you're you're stuck in a blender and it's turned on and a new creation emerges so that we're encouraged to live not with people who are just like us. Not that it's bad to have friends where it's easy. That's not what I'm saying. But, But where the glue that binds Church on Mill together is not we all look alike. But the gospel is the binding agent. Where our commitment to the whole church, all the members, not just our friends, is what binds us together. Friends, it's because the gospel's at stake. We have the deep-seated value and conviction as a church, that the more diverse we can be, the more glory God will receive. And that's what church is for. So when an older woman takes a 20-year-old sister in Christ who's covered in tattoos, and this old lady can't imagine getting one, and she gets a little bit nervous out in public when she's with this 20-year-old, got a whole sleeve. But they go to lunch after church 
so that the one can care for the other. Angels look in and they say, wow, God's power is incredible. When a, when a Caucasian couple meets a brand new Arab Christian in Church on Mill, and this brand new convert gets fired from his work because his, his boss is Muslim, and that Arab has nowhere to live, and this white couple takes this Arab in, gives a room, puts food in front of his or her face, And treats them not as a foreigner, but as an equal heir in Christ. Angels look in and say, wow, God is amazing. That when men, young to old, white, African-American, whatever, when when men who are members of Church on Mill don't steal quick, lust-filled glances, at the women in the church. But instead, they look them in the eyes and treat them as peers, as equals in Christ. Hold the door open. Take interest in them. Don't use their bodies for a quick little jolt. The angels look in. They say, wow, look at what God can do in somebody. Because, guys, we're not like that in and of ourselves. Friends, the more diverse we are, the stronger our witness for Christ will be. Especially in downtown Tempe. The community is incredibly diverse. Church on Mill, by God's grace, may we display the wisdom of God. Because the gospel is the binding agent that binds us together. There is no other organization on the planet commissioned to do that. The Republican Party doesn't do that. The UN doesn't have that role. Not even the family is commissioned to do that. Only the church. The local church is the hub. So what's God doing? God is uniting all things under Christ. God's intent in the church is to use us, people, a diverse people, as trophies of his glory. So may the Spirit of God reinvigorate us for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ through diverse local churches to the praise of his glorious wisdom. This is God's intent. This is what God's doing. It brings glory to him and it's awfully good for us. It's the very best way to live. Let's pray. God, I feel like I have not even scratched the surface of Ephesians chapter 3. So I pray that by your power, that your word would do your work. 
that where we've, those of us in the room who are Christians who have taken the pledge of membership to one another, that where we have degenerated back into, just hanging out with people who are easy because they're the same as us, that God, you would forgive us that we might be encouraged today through your word by what you're doing, that your intent in Church on Mill is to bring yourself glory and honor and praise as your wisdom is put on display. As people who without you would not pursue each other, but through the gospel, we can see that we're equals in Christ. God, help us to do that. Help us to set aside our own selfishness that we might experience your power, your glory, your gospel. Because Church on Mill is the stage, both for angels and demons above and for all of these people who fill this community who are in so desperate need of seeing the gospel. I pray also for those here who, as we've articulated and reminded ourselves of the gospel truth today that Jesus came to save sinners, that if they've not yet trusted in Christ, that, God, they'd be bold and courageous to ask somebody sitting around them. I want to hear more about that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.